Hello and welcome to episode 66 of the UK True Crime Weekly Podcast. I'm Adam. Today's story from Cornwall is a really interesting one involving death, witchcraft, money, sex and abuse. But before we get to the story, I'd like to thank my supporters this week on Patreon. That's Sashi Byrne, Clooney Fenner and Sean Young. Thank you so much for your support. I hope you enjoy the 12 full-length bonus episodes and the other exclusive content you can find on Patreon. I'm delighted that today's show is sponsored by ShipStation. When you're selling online, getting your orders out of the door quickly can be tough. That's why you need ShipStation.com. If you sell online at eBay, Amazon or any other place, you need ShipStation. It's the fast and easy way to manage and dispatch your orders all from one place. You can use ShipStation to compare rates from top careers including Royal Mail, FedEx, DHL and UPS. And whether you have one or hundreds of orders, ShipStation makes it easy to batch and print labels so you can get your orders out quickly and delight your customers. No wonder ShipStation is an increasingly popular choice for online sellers across the UK. Now you can try ShipStation free for 30 days. Plus, get a special bonus when you use the promotion code UKTRUECRIME. To get the special promotion, just visit ShipStation.com, click on the microphone at the top of the page and type in UKTRUECRIME. That's ShipStation.com, then enter promotion code UKTRUECRIME. ShipStation.com, make ship happen. Let's set some context for today's story. In June 2004, top of the UK music charts was Frankie with F-U-R-B. In reply to the song at number three in the charts, Eamon with I Don't Want You Back. One of the worst songs I've ever heard was at number 28, The Streets, with Fit But You Know It. Remember that one? Please tell me you haven't listened to this track since. In the US, Usher was number one with Burn. In the news this month, ex-president Ronald Reagan's funeral was held at Washington National Cathedral. Spider-Man 2 starring Tobey Maguire and Kirsten Dunst was released. The incumbent Ken Livingston was announced as the winner of the election for Mayor of London. And in Euro 2004, surprise, surprise, England went out on penalties to Portugal. Cornwall, at the far southwest of England, is a beautiful place popular with people from all over the UK and the world. Famous for its beautiful and often rugged coastline, the north coast at Newquay is the centre of the UK surfing scene. Sailing's idyllic in Cornwall and highly popular across the whole coastline, with many people across the UK and beyond keeping their boats at various marinas and moorings across the county. One such place is the Cornish village of Mylor Churchtown, where boats outnumber the 200 or so residents by 3 to 1. If you've been there, you'll know what a beautiful spot it is. And all through the summer, the Carrick Road Harbour is bustling with activity as sailors enjoy the sport. In June 2004, the scene was a different one, as mingling with the sailors and tourists were a number of uniformed police officers. On June 18th, the body of 56-year-old Peter Solheim was found by fishermen in the sea, five miles off Blackhead on the Lizard Peninsula. A surprisingly large number of people die in accidents off the Cornish coast every year, and initially, locals assumed that Peter had been the victim of another tragic accident at sea. Although he was naked and his body was marked, this wasn't a particular cause for concern, 
as it's common for drowning victims to be stripped of their clothing by the turbulent currents of the area. And the marks on his body were attributed to being bashed about on the rocks which lie in this stretch of coast. But a week later, Devon and Cornwall police announced that a post-mortem examination had revealed that although Peter had drowned, there were unexplained injuries on his body. This led to detectives launching a murder inquiry, which quickly expanded to include over 40 detectives, uniformed officers and police divers. If you've spent time, like me, around a sailing community, you will know that the talk is around, well, mainly alcohol, but that aside, tides, sea states, wind and past and future sailing adventures. But the villagers now spoke of nothing else except who could have murdered Peter Solheim. Roger Graffy was the managing director of Myla Yacht Harbour and had responsibility for managing 500 or so of the 600-ish moorings off the village, said, This has become a place full of intrigue and suspicion. Everyone has his or her own theory about how and why he died. What everyone knew for certain was that Peter was a divorced parish councillor with three grown-up children, who was last seen alive shortly after lunchtime on Wednesday, June the 16th, two days before his body was found. His girlfriend, Margaret James, had left him and his 12-foot dinghy on the slipway at Mylor after he told her he was going to meet a friend called Charlie. She had not expected him to return that night to his cottage, six miles from the harbour, because he was talking of making an overnight fishing trip, or possibly heading over to France across the Channel. This was perfectly normal for Peter, and there was nothing about what he said that made Margaret suspect that anything was amiss. But that is where the certainty ends. It's unclear whether Peter even launched his boat, and although he certainly did not make the trip to France, police were now trying to understand just what did happen to him between saying goodbye to Margaret and his body being found 12 miles or so from Mylor at around midday two days later. In a press conference... Detectives announced that they were keeping an open mind about just why or how Peter was killed. Initially, they believed that he had left Myla Harbour alone in his white dinghy, Iswiz. But then a witness came forward with a different story. And based on that account, police were now firmly of the belief that he left with a white male, about 5'10 and in his 50s. His boat, Iswiz, was found floating off a pontoon at Myla with the key still in the ignition the day after Peter left Margaret. Police privately were taking the view that this man Peter had gone with, probably known to him, and possibly to a larger boat nearby, had also attacked and murdered Peter, dumped his body at sea, and quickly left the dinghy in the harbour before leaving the scene. Detective Inspector Neil Best, who took charge of the murder inquiry from the nearest large town, Falmouth, said, It's vital that we trace Charlie, It's disappointing that so far he has not come forward. And already luck seemed to be against the investigation, preventing them from gaining a quick breakthrough. Normally, CCTV cameras monitor the marina, but they'd been taken away, ironically, by other police officers the month before. This was because they were needed as evidence for a tragic accident in which a five-year-old boy was killed by a speedboat that had slipped off its trailer. Police feared that due to the transient nature of the sailing community, this case was unlikely to be solved quickly. Detective Best, pointing out to sea beyond the confines of the marina, said, It's a minefield out there. Boats come and go all the time. And at the moment, just what happened to Peter Solheim out at sea 
is a complete mystery. The details of Peter's death made shocking reading. He'd been drugged and the joints of his limbs had been hacked at with an axe or a machete. Although a post-mortem examination revealed he had drowned, the police said that he had suffered hacking to limb joints. One of his kneecaps had been smashed and one of his big toes was almost severed. There was also bruising around his fingers, although rings had been forced off or on. More detailed examinations showed that he'd been sedated with the drug lorazepam. Detectives reached a conclusion that for over 36 hours he'd been tortured, drugged and then dropped, just about still alive, into the sea. One said, Peter Solheim suffered a gruesome death. He was murdered, having been sedated by a stupefying drug. His head and the joints of several of his limbs were targeted with blunt and sharp weapons either when he was dead or on the brink of death. His mutilated body was then dumped miles out at sea, his attackers thinking he was never to be seen again. But contrary to expectation, the body was spotted by fishermen within a few hours of it being dumped. As detectives probed further into the life of Peter Solheim, they realised that this 56-year-old had led a very interesting and unusual life which also offered them a large number of leads to pursue. Peter Solheim grew up not far from Falmouth. His mum was from Cornwall and she'd married a Norwegian sailor. His dad was a chief engineer on a Norwegian whaling ship. Just as an aside, quite how this utterly cruel and barbaric industry still exists is beyond me. But this meant that his dad spent extended periods at sea without Skype or other technology to contact his family back home. Inevitably, Peter spent much of his life with his mum, with not much of a father figure in his life. His dad wanted him to follow in his footsteps and make his living from the sea, but although Peter did enjoy sailing, he did not have the same passion as his dad, and a career at sea was never on the cards for Peter. As a boy, he had an adventurous and rebellious nature. Not only had he collected knives and air rifles, but he'd once planted a homemade bomb made from weed killer and sugar, under the bridge in his village of Buddock Water. The explosion was more smoke than fire, but it caused a bit of a stir, said one resident. Peter was very practical and handy, and after leaving school became a panel beater, did a stint at a printing works, and used his technical ability in a number of roles fixing machinery. But his personality was always someone who wanted more, and for him the grass always seemed greener elsewhere. In 1971, he married a local clerk called Jean Doley, and soon Jean gave birth to a girl, Lisa, followed four years later by her son. All seemed to be heading towards a very normal life for Peter and his family, but that wasn't to be the case at all. He and his wife soon divorced, and this proved to be the catalyst for creating the lifestyle he followed until his murder. Peter had always had a quick temper and was somewhat, I guess, volatile in his behaviour, but splitting from his wife really changed him. Those who know him, looking back, suggest that at this time Peter was maybe displaying symptoms of manic depression, suffering extreme bouts of depression, followed by mania. If you've ever experienced this illness, you will understand the, the issues this can cause with maintaining close relationships with people close to the sufferer. Peter had always struggled in his relationships with his children, but this deteriorated further after the divorce. After one argument, he told a neighbour that he didn't care if he never saw them again for the rest of his life. The difficulties Peter suffered at the end of his marriage, they were difficult for him to take. 
but by the mid-1990s he'd lost contact with his children. This allowed him not to feel constrained by anything that had tied him to the past and he was now free to indulge in the two things he loved the most, sex and witchcraft. Ah, listeners, I know just what you are thinking. As a combination, those two obsessions aren't really suited to a quiet life in a rural Cornish village, are they? Or who knows? Maybe in fact they are. As we always say on this podcast, we have no real idea just what those closest to us really do in their time not with us and are capable of, let alone our neighbours. In the pre-Tinder age, Peter was a prolific responder to Lonely Hearts adverts in local newspapers. Charismatic and attractive, if beards are your thing that is, they don't really do it for me, he met a large number of women and I guess the euphemism is that he enjoyed their company. He enjoyed the company of a large number of women. But this was never enough for him. He always wanted more. As for his interest in the occult, this started innocently following his interest in the landscape of Cornwall and the ancient rituals of previous generations. But as with the women he met, the pagan rituals he became involved in were never enough for him. He wanted to experience more and go deeper to enhance the quality of the experience. The sense of adventure and rebellion against the norm never left him. After his death, 56-year-old John Bastin, a lecturer who grew up with Peter and was chairman of the Buddock Parish Council, on which his friend also served, said, Peter always had an adventurous and experimental streak. All his life, he tested the boundaries. Peter had to retire from the printing business after an accident at work, and this gave him more time to explore his interests. He joined a Druid sect in St Mary in Cornwall several years before his death, and took part in rituals such as dancing around stone circles. A member said this of him, It became clear that he wanted to go into areas that everyone else felt uncomfortable with. He was always making knives and swords. Ed Prynne, the Archdruid of Cornwall, said, Pagan worship is meant to be a shared experience, but he went off on his own to do it. And according to friends, when he left the group, he pursued a more sinister interest in Satanism and black magic. He wanted to go into areas that no one else was comfortable with, said one sect member. Another acquaintance said that Peter had once performed a black magic spell on two locals who felt threatened and frightened. His warlock name was Orm, from the Old Norse word for dragon, and he had an impressive collection of potions, poisons and books at his home, which was named Valhalla, the Hall of the Slain, presided over by Odin, god of war and death. He had two copies of a notorious book called The Mastery of Witchcraft, and had boasted that he had nails from coffins and dust taken from Egyptian tombs. During their investigation, police were very quickly aware of Peter's interest in the occult, and they certainly considered this as a line of inquiry as they investigated his murder. But wary of public perception, getting witnesses to talk about what they knew wasn't easy. Another line they were following is that he could have been involved in drug dealing. The coves and secluded spots along the Cornish coastline make this an ideal location, and maybe the fact that he was due to be meeting Charlie, the street name for cocaine, was perhaps an indication that he was making money via a drug deal. After all, Peter was unemployed. 
but he was quite a wealthy man and was well known for carrying large sums of cash. It wasn't unusual for him to have over £1,000 in his pocket. Just how did he have access to this sort of money? He made legitimate cash from a number of interests, including selling antique firearms and pornography. But did money from drugs contribute to his income? But there was another angle being followed by police. In the 1990s, Peter was friends with Fred Trull, the clerk to the ancient Cornish Dannery Parliament. Frankly, Troll was a crook who persuaded investors to invest £1.50 each to buy shares in tin mines that he said would allow them exemption from the poll tax. In 1994, the House of Lords ruled that there was no ancient exemption, but by then up to £200,000 of the estimated £2 million collected had disappeared. Peter was one of those rumoured to have made money from the scheme, which was clearly a scam. Had someone who had lost money in the scheme taken this opportunity to exact their revenge? The other person who was of immediate interest to detectives was the person who saw him last, Peter's girlfriend, Margaret James. She had met Peter in September 1995, when he had replied to her advert in a local paper, and for their first meeting he had turned up at her house with flowers. Margaret was flattered, and they were soon a couple. Margaret had experienced real tragedy in her life when in the mid-1980s her husband was tragically killed in a fire. He'd been working at a gravel pit, but money was tight for the couple, so he'd been sleeping in a bus at the site, which one night caught fire, and he died in the accident. The couple had two children, who Margaret raised as a single parent, and it was a few years later that the insurance company finally paid out, which enabled her to move to a Coast Guard's cottage in Cornwall. In this tight-knit community, everyone soon knew all about Margaret's background. And although there was some sympathy for her, many didn't warm to her due to what they perceived as her eccentricity. She was vegan, like me, nothing strange there. It's people who eat animals and drink their milk that I find a bit odd. She swam naked in the sea. Again, if you haven't done this, it's so much nicer than being constrained by clothes. Nothing strange there. She always walked barefoot, whatever the weather, and she readily embraced the pagan lifestyle. People who visited her home often found it not as tidy as they would like. In fact, many described it as filthy. Gosh, how English to judge someone by the tidiness of their house. It's rather embarrassing, isn't it? In reality, Margaret is a strong woman with a good relationship with her children and grandchildren. She looked after her elderly mum, and she had lots of good friendships in the local area. Peter and Margaret themselves had a somewhat unusual relationship. In addition to shared interests in money, paganism, sex, magic and pills and potions, he and Margaret liked to go to beaches together and watch sunsets. But there was no trust in their relationship and they spied on each other. In fact, some described this tension in their relationship as so extreme that the overall relationship was described as fraught. One of the issues behind this tension is at the time of his death, Peter was still engaging in another relationship with another woman, Jean Knowles, who he'd been seeing for 20 years. When he was killed, he was wearing a ring given to him by Jean, which police believed had been forced off as he was tortured. Police were immediately suspicious of Margaret. Although everyone reacts differently to such traumatic events, 
officers found Margaret evasive about names, times and events. She seemed somewhat indifferent to what had happened to Peter, and although this just may have been her way of dealing with it, Margaret quickly became the prime suspect. The police believed she had a number of motives. One was money. Although Margaret had significant savings, police knew that she was aware of Peter's other long-term relationship with Jean, and she feared that he was about to leave her. Margaret denied this and said that as far as she was aware, she last saw Peter as he waited for his friend Charlie for the fishing trip and in the days following his departure, she and Jean received text messages from his phone. She said that Jean was just a fantasist and wasn't really in a serious relationship with Peter and there was certainly no way he would have left her to go and live with Jean. Other evidence was uncovered by police. A year before Peter's death, It was alleged that Margaret had asked a friend if he knew anyone who would kill her partner. She'd also begun increasing her own home library of books on potions and poisons. When police searched her home they found £900 stuffed under her mattress with a note that read, What goes around, comes around. There was also more than £23,000 in tins, paper bags and envelopes stored at her mum's house. The text I mentioned a few minutes ago were strange, both Margaret and Jean received these texts. But police were increasingly certain that the texts had been sent by Margaret herself and to Jean. Experts argued that the data showed that the mobile belonging to Peter was physically close to Margaret's mobile, enabling Margaret to send texts from this to give the impression that Peter remained alive. One of the messages had him experiencing engine trouble, but crucially, experts said it was sent after his body was found. And experts pinpointed the place where the text was sent from, which was Margaret's house. Detectives believed that Margaret James hired thugs to abduct and kill Peter. They thought that it was likely she was present when he was being tortured. But despite extensive investigation, police could not provide the evidence to show who had actually killed Peter, but they did feel they had enough to charge Margaret. Opening the prosecution case at Truro Crown Court, the prosecution urged the jury not to be fooled by this diminutive lady in the dock, adding that she had a heart of stone. At the conclusion of the trial, the jury found Margaret James guilty of conspiracy to murder and the 58-year-old was sent to prison for 20 years. Judge Graham Cottle told her, It was you who wanted him dead and you who masterminded and orchestrated the events which culminated in his death. What you orchestrated was a horrific and slow death. He said she was obsessed with money and had stolen cash from Peter before and after his death. The judge added that she'd arranged to have him killed in a most gruesome fashion after discovering that he was about to leave her and marry another lover. Her motives were a combination of hatred, jealousy, revenge and a desire to get her hands on his money and start a new life somewhere else. Margaret James unsuccessfully appealed against her sentence, and as you listen to this podcast today, she is behind bars. Ben Gunn works for the organisation Inside Justice, and writing about this case, he noted that the case has never been closed by the police, as, even if the prosecution case is right, it is known that Margaret could not have killed Peter alone, and she'd have needed accomplices. Several years after the murder, two men were arrested and then released for being his killers, 
but neither the police, CPS, nor the courts have allowed Margaret James's lawyers to know any information about these suspects. Gunn poses the following questions. Who else has been questioned by the police about this case? Are those arrests relevant to the safety of Margaret James's conviction? Was Peter Solheim about to leave Margaret for his long-term mistress? Did Peter Solheim actually get onto his boat with a man named Charlie? Who and where is Charlie? Can the mobile phone evidence accurately be reconciled to determine whether the text sent after Peter's death came from Margaret herself or his killers out at sea? The phone evidence is particularly interesting as it was disputed heavily at Margaret's trial. Is it possible to tell whether the injuries to Peter Solheim were caused by a propeller or other injury caused after falling from a boat? The press, as you can imagine, focused on the witchcraft angle of the case. And Peter's name came up unexpectedly in another trial shortly afterwards, when two men, Jack Kemp and Peter Petrowsk from Falmouth, were given lengthy sentences after being found guilty of being part of a paedophile ring, which involved ritualistic, sickening sex abuse of young girls. The court heard that Peter Solheim was part of this child abuse gang that used satanic imagery such as daggers and gowns to intimidate victims, operating in Cornwall from the 1970s onwards, who plied children as young as three with alcohol before making them undress in front of rogue men. Victims were sexually abused by their tormentors before being silenced by sweets and money. The prosecution said that Petrowsk, aged 72, who referred to himself as the High Priest of a White Witch Coven, had named both Solheim and Kemp. The defence said, When the police arrested Peter Petrowsk, without them mentioning any names, he instantly came out of the names Jack Kemp and Peter Solheim. He knew the names because he'd been part of a gang, not a gang of pagans, but a gang of child abusers. He also said that the victims had reported being abused by Peter Solheim. Summing up, the judge, Graham Kettle, told the two men, The offences range from the extremely serious to the truly horrifying. You are two of the surviving members of a paedophile ring, together with others whose names have been repeated frequently in this trial, who were members of a ring that operated in Falmouth in the 70s and 80s. I am satisfied that you have both had a lifelong sexual interest in young female children. The trial has featured ritualistic, sickening abuse of young, young children. The scars left on the victims are so obvious that it would seem extremely unlikely that either of you have any real prospect of recovery. Finally, the truth about your lies and your undoubted propensities has caught up with you. Petraus was convicted of rape, aiding and abetting an attempted rape and indecent assault. Judge Cottle sentenced him to 18 years in prison. Kemp was guilty of 10 sexual offences, including indecent assault and indecency of a child, and was handed a 14-year term. What about Peter Solheim's involvement in this? Just how involved was he in this group, and could this have contributed to his death? I appreciate we haven't heard all the evidence in court, but I can understand why many still pose the question of whether or not Margaret James was guilty. With Peter Solheim's likely involvement in child abuse mentioned in the trial that we've just heard about, was it in fact his involvement in this that led to his death? And if not, and the case proved in court is correct, then sure, Margaret James is guilty of conspiracy to murder. 
but just who actually killed Peter Solheim. Thank you for listening to this episode of the UK True Crime Weekly Podcast. Please join us on the Facebook group to discuss this case and all other aspects of UK true crime. We have a really interesting bunch of people from all over the world who will make you feel very welcome. If you'd like to support the show and help me to keep producing episodes every week, please head to patreon.com slash UK true crime where you can listen to 12 bonus full-length episodes and other exclusive content. Please take a look and support me if you can. If possible, also please head to my sponsor, ShipStation. But that is all from me for this week. So until we talk again next week, it's cheerio from me.